Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Today's episode is brought to you by West Holm. We all know from home cooks to restaurant chefs to eating enthusiasts that the quality of your ingredients makes all the difference, especially when it comes to meat. West Holm, which is based in Queensland in the Northern Territory, Australia, is working with the land to create nature-led Australian Wagyu. They steward 16 million acres of rangeland, guided by the natural ecosystem where their cattle thrive. The result is high-quality Wagyu beef that reflects the terroir of Northern Australia and a flavor suited to complement any cuisine. West Holm believes that when nature leads, flavor follows. Learn more at westholm.com slash savor. That's W-E-S-T-H-O-L-M-E dot com slash saver. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hello, and welcome to Saver, a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today, we're talking about molecular gastronomy. Yes, which, <laughs> uh, fun fact, a lot of you have requested, but also, we're recording this uh, in the morning, which is very rare for oh, yeah. Saver. Yeah, I, I personally don't like, well, I don't like mornings, like, period. I don't, <laughs> but I don't like recording in the morning because I feel like, like my voice hasn't gotten all of its fry out yet. Oh, like I yeah. need like another like couple hours and a cup of coffee before I stop feeling like Tom Waits. So oh well, you know Tom Waits is a fun voice though. So this is a maybe we'll just mix it up this time. <laughs> uh, this is like a little Lauren Vogelbaum <laughs> <laughs> voice tidbit, kind of like an Easter egg. <laughs> yeah, but it was it's a particularly. Uh, Interesting topic to to choose to tackle in the morning. Yeah, um, but we're gonna we're gonna do it. We are, we are. We're, we're also without the benefit of um, super producer Andrew sitting in with us um, because he had he, he his his day was very busy today. So we could go totally off the rails. So yeah, y'all have to deal with us. <laughs> There's no one to stop us now. <laughs> Finally, we're free. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I gotta say, I I really didn't know much about molecular gastronomy before we did this. Uh, we did touch on it in our Simpsons episode of all episodes. <laughs> uh-huh. I think I think I kind of had a vague understanding of what it was, and I know I've had it. I know I've had 
this type of cuisine. And I liked it. In some cases, I loved it because I, I love new experiences. So yeah, a sort of one of its big tenets is providing new food experience. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think I've ever had, or I don't, I don't know. I've had some like, some like caviar that wasn't caviar, but rather something else in caviar form. Um, I've had some cocktails that were served with like a, with like a smoke element um, yeah. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I feel like and, you've and had I, a foam before. Oh, I've, I've, I've had a, you're correct, Annie. I've had a foam. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. Um, okay. Well, on that, let's get to our question. <laughs> Molecular gastronomy. What is it? Um, good question, actually. <laughs> yep. Um, well, uh, all right. So, so molecular gastronomy is not a way of preparing food. Um, it, it's the study of the physics and chemistry behind the preparation of food. And, and it's, it's using those things, um, that, that physics and that chemistry, to, to be creative and to prepare food in, in thoughtful and evocative and, you know, hypothetically enjoyable ways. Um, so it's a branch of food science that wants to party. Uh, party very precisely, but, but party nonetheless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, like, like when you... When you boil pasta or, or rice or um, cook a steak or, or make a grilled cheese, you don't have to know anything about science to accomplish that task and to, and to wind up with a fairly tasty result, right? Um, like knowing the science would help. Um, yeah. Part of why we do this podcast. Um, but, but, you don't, but you don't need to. But molecular gastronomy is a field that says uh, not only does knowing the science help, but it can be fun, and it can lead to the creation of dishes that are maybe, like, less practical than a grilled cheese, um, but that make you think about food differently. Or, uh, contrary-wise, it can lead to the creation of dishes um, that are more practical in some way. Mm-hmm. So, you might use these principles um, to, to create a dessert that, when you eat it, feels and tastes like a, like little like apple jellies and lemon granita and caramel wafers, but that contains no apple or lemon or caramel. You can put a cocktail in an ice sphere or a gel bubble that bursts in your mouth. Um, you, you, can, you can make dang anything look and feel like caviar. Uh, <laughs> you, can, um, you can really play with flavor and texture and expectations. And all kinds of like kind of high-tech sciencey equipment and techniques have been put to use in, in using molecular gastronomy to create food. Um, you know, cooking with dehydrators and uh, ultrasound and pressure cookers and vacuum-assisted devices and uh, low-temp water baths, um, anti-griddles, which are quick cooling surfaces. I just love the term. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, using aerosols and gels and the aforementioned foams in uh, in new and interesting ways. Molecular gastronomy is showing that you can use the power of science to be creative with food. But, uh, and here enters the confusion, um, the term molecular gastronomy has also been applied um, to the actual dishes and techniques used to make those dishes that this field of theory has yielded. Um, the the co-creator later drew a distinction 
between these two things, um, defining molecular gastronomy as, as a thing that produces knowledge. And then he used the term molecular cooking to describe the thing that produces food. Right. And and there's also probably 20 different names um, for <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's sort of, at least it seems to me, uh, some chefs don't like the term molecular gastronomy. So, I mean, it's like alchemy comes up in there. All uh-huh. kinds of, all kinds of terms. Yeah, that, cookery science is one that appears yeah. sometimes. I, yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. Yes, so that that also <laughs> creates some confusion there. Mm-hmm. Um, but all right, what about the nutrition? <laughs> uh, I feel like, is this like the second or third in a row? Um, yeah. Don't, don't eat science? Or no, 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 do, do eat science. Science is delicious. Don't eat a field of theory connecting the pleasure and art of cooking and eating to the physics and chemistry that makes it possible. Don't, don't eat that. That sounds like a thing from the phantom toll booth that would definitely give you indigestion. Mm, the doldrums. Um, <laughs> I feel like this is, if you're at a dinner party, you're having, you know, your cocktails, and uh, you did that question that's supposed to be an icebreaker of what's the last thing you had to eat, this would be mm-hmm. a really pretentious answer <laughs> oh, of, like, science, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> And then you leave that group of people. (laughs) And you walk out the door and (laughs) keep walking forever. (laughs) Never to return. (laughs) I think I've done that at a party before. Yeah, definitely. Just like, welp. (laughs) I've done all that I can here. Yes, this is not the place for me. (laughs) I am going to take my awkward elsewhere. Yes, yes. And uh, we are both awkward at parties, so that is saying something. Oh, my goodness. I hope that's fair to say, Lauren. I know that I am. Extremely, extremely fair to say. That's, yeah. I think you're better at parties than I am, so I... I have a small window when I'm really good, and then (laughs) that once that window is shut... And I am, like, the most awkward. <laughs> I am the one just telling you facts about snails, and I can't stop, and people are staring at me like their eyes screaming, help. <laughs> anyway, invite me to parties. I'm great. Um, so we don't have a lot of numbers because there is so much confusion around this. Um, mm-hmm. And honestly, when I was looking at big names in this world, there weren't too many people. But... Uh, Yes, yeah, so a part of that could be that some chefs, uh, or a lot of them, depending on what you read, really mm-hmm. chafe at, at this name and being categorized under this umbrella. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking to The Guardian, Heston Blumenthal said that the term sounds complicated and elitist, and that molecular gastronomy was dead. And that that's real funny, because if, if y'all don't know who Heston Blumenthal is, um, uh, he, he's the chef of, of Fat Duck, who is probably one of the better-known names connected to the techniques uh, involved with molecular gastronomy. So I'm like, I see you. I see you, Heston. <laughs> yes. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that seems to happen with a few people, in fact. <laughs> uh, and Alitas definitely does get thrown around a lot yeah, in sure. this conversation. And and some think that that has to do 
yeah, with confusion around what the term actually means. So, all right. But yeah, but it can be it can be a little bit pretentious. Um, for, yeah, for sure. And one um, of the big criticisms of it is people is chefs doing it to more show off mm-hmm. and less concerned about the the final product and how it tastes. More like, look what I can do. Yeah, rather than oh, you have to eat it now. Like, yeah, yeah. Right. Also, it costs three hundred dollars. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, but but for sure, that's I I don't think that it was born out of any desire to to be elitist or pretentious. Um, no. Uh, I think it was a really more more um, thoughtful and playful. And yeah. we're going to get into the history of that. But first, we are going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Discover Puerto Rico. We've talked in a bunch of different episodes about facets of Puerto Rican cuisine, um, like the dish mofongo, made of savory, deep-fried mashed plantains studded with some kind of tasty protein, and the creation of the cool, creamy piña colada. But there is so much more there. Um, I've actually never been. You have a tiny bit of experience, don't you? Yes. Unfortunately, it was a very tiny bit of experience. Mm -hmm. I was there for about a day. I'm kicking myself for that now. I remember having delicious rums, delicious drinks. But I want to go back because, yeah, so many episodes we do on here, when we're talking about food from Puerto Rico, I want that. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) it sounds amazing. We're trying to get a savor team trip together. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Well, I mean, we're we're trying to get a trip to a lot of places, but this is yeah. this is really top of the list. Even putting together this ad read made me hungry. I was like, oh, oh, I want to try those things. Yeah, as we've talked about before, there are influences there from African and Spanish and native Taino foodways. The culinary scene sounds amazing, and we want to go. And I'm hungry. No me passport too. is required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. You can learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Today's episode is brought to you by West Holm. I'm a person who doesn't really cook with a lot of meat, to be honest, because when I do, I want it to be special. I'm the same, and I do love sharing that food with people. And I have to say, we received some product, some steak, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I am very eager to share it with my friends. Yeah, uh, West Holm sent us uh, a few of their products, and they included these gorgeous, gigantic tomahawk steaks that I, like, opened the box and immediately sent a picture to my best grilling friend, like, hang out soon. Yes, I did too. (laughs) West Holm offers these beautifully marbled steaks because they have 16 million acres of rangeland across the northeast corner of Australia, from Brisbane to Darwin. They use a nature-led approach with the belief that if they balance the needs of their cattle with the needs of their environment, both can thrive. Their cattle graze on native grasses like Mitchell grass, which is found only in Australia, and roam wild, foraging at will for the first two to three years of their lives. The result is Wagyu beef that reflects the terroir of northern Australia and a quality that would complement whatever you're into cooking right now. Westholm believes that when nature leads, flavor follows. Learn more at westholm.com slash savor. That's W-E-S-T-H-O-L-M-E dot com slash savor. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Dad deserves something really nice for Father's Day. But let's face it, we usually don't do it. Big gifts are for Mother's Day. 
Picking something up on the way is for Father's Day. Well, let's make Father's Day something this year with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. It whips up over 60 premium cocktails on demand, each ready at the push of a button. And right now, you get $50 off the Bartesian Cocktail Maker when you buy one pack of Dad's favorite cocktail capsules. Dad will publicly love that you saved 50 on the countertop machine that crafts premium cocktails on demand. And he'll secretly love that you splurged on him for Father's Day with the gift of a Bartesian. Because the only thing that lets Dad know he's the world's number one dad better than a world's number one dad coffee mug is an artisan cocktail in his hand. Make dad's Father's Day and Father's Day cocktails with all natural juices and bitters without making any mess at all. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash father to get $50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. So, disclaimer on this one, if we did an episode, if the history section was the history of the science of cooking, this episode would never end. Oh, yeah. And we would just die here. So Yeah, that, that's just, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's more, I mean, that's like at least half of the premise of this entire podcast. Yes. yes. So, yeah. so consider every episode we've ever done to be a lead up. Yeah, we've all been building up to this, yes. (laughs) But also, don't expect us to cover literally all of science and cooking. (laughs) No. Yes, please don't do that. Your expectations will be dashed. We don't want that. We don't want that. Like a foam slowly collapsing. (laughs) Oh, terrible, terrible. Okay, so yes, the intersection of science and cuisine has been around a long while, pretty much since... Humanity has been cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, going all the way back to 2nd century BCE, there are records indicating that the writer, the anonymous writer, uh, was comparing the weights of fermented meat to fresh meat to discern which was heavier. Okay. Yeah, things like that. Uh, meat stock preparation has been of particular interest. Oh, geez, it has. Oh, yes. When it comes to this intersection throughout history— Denis Papin described his 1679 invention of the pressure cooker in his book, which is considered by many one of the very first scientific books on cooking. And then in 1783, Antoine Laurent de Lavoisier evaluated meat stock cooking methods, their density and quality differences in those things. Many historians in particular point to 18th, 19th century chef and gastronome. Anthelem Brilliat Savarin and his 1825 work, La Physiologie du Goût en Gastronomy. 19th century's Alexis Soyer's name comes up a lot in this conversation, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Um, an 1885 book out of Europe suggested letting dinner party guests to make their own ice cream, let them make their own ice cream using liquid nitrogen. And this huh. book, yeah, I know, this sounds like something you do today. Um, yeah. It read, quote, its powers are astonishing, and persons scientifically inclined may perhaps like to amuse and instruct their friends as well as feed them. Gosh. Mm. Is yep. he talking about us? Uh, it does sound <laughs> that way. <laughs> Again, we're great at parties. Um, <laughs> and as our understanding of science has grown and technology has advanced, so too have our thoughts and ideas around cooking. Nouvelle cuisine, 
was a stop along this evolution. Mm -hmm, Um, And mm -hmm. at the time, an equally controversial one. We should do a whole other episode on that. Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, man. We we covered it a little bit in our episode about um, uh, why French cuisine um, for a long time was considered like the cuisine. Right. (laughs) Yes. The cuisine. Um, In 1903, Escoffier wrote, If everything is changing, it would be absurd to claim to fix the density of an art based, in many respects, on fashion and as unstable as it. If taste Hmm. is becoming more refined, the culinary art, too, has to conform to it. To contrast the effects of modern superactivity, cooking will become more scientific and precise. Hmm. Yeah. All right. So, officially... Molecular gastronomy was created in 1992, which is my little brother's age. Aw. Or 1988, which is my age. (laughs) (laughs) And more on that that kind of date confusion in a second. It was the brainchild of British physicist Nicholas Curdy and French physical chemist and professor Hervé Thies. And they also gave it the name. Uh, They used the term to describe a new discipline that used science to understand the chemistry of cooking and to deconstruct dishes and present them in different ways. They embraced using science to find new methods of cooking, preparing, and presenting food. The confusion about the date is most likely because the creators really introduced it to the global stage in 1992 when they held their Mm -hmm. first International Workshop of Molecular and Physical Gastronomy. Yes, which was the original name, Molecular and Physical Gastronomy, Mm -hmm. of the discipline. And this was held in Italy, and they invited chefs and scientists alike to learn about this new way of looking at cooking and what it could be. Tease puts the date that he and Curdy came up with it in 1988, however. Ah, there you go. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. I mean, I'm inclined to trust the creator, but... (laughs) (laughs) Ah, who am I? Um, They derive the name from Brilliat Severin's definition for gastronomy, which, quote, gastronomy is the reasoned knowledge of all that relates to man feeding himself. Its aim is to attend to the preservation of man by means of the best possible food. It relates to and manages, following certain principles, everybody who explores, supplies, or prepares those things which may be converted into food. Yeah, um, another translation of that first line, um, I, I kind of want to repeat it because I, I think it's so crucial to the conversation, um, that, yeah, gastronomy is the intelligent knowledge of whatever concerns man's nourishment. Oh. Yeah. Molecular was chosen to narrow and focus on the scope, uh, though it was originally called, yes, molecular and physical <laughs> gastronomy. Yeah, more on that in a second. Um, but uh, but yeah, they, they were also using the word molecular here. They, they were riffing on the term molecular biology, um, which arose in the 1930s to describe using chemistry and physics in order to explore and investigate biology. So yeah, just a little bit of little bit of deep science nerd wordplay here. <laughs> science nerd wordplay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, also, note by note cuisine was promoted beginning in 1994, um, essentially preparing food with pure chemical compounds. Um, and teas was behind this as well. And in fact, I got very confused because I thought it was something totally different until like halfway into my research. And I had to go back and like rewrite <laughs> oh, yeah. and rethink mm-hmm. about what, what I thought I knew. Teese really made a name for himself in the culinary world. Um, 
Matisse advises Michelin star chefs and government officials. He has sliced an onion in an MRI. <laughs> he's come up with an Ioli equation. And he's done a lot of experiments with eggs. Uh, cooking them without <laughs> heat. Unboiling them. Mm-hmm. Turning them transparent. And mummifying them. Mummifying. Mummified eggs. I don't even know what that means, but I, I like don't it. either. And I'm terrified. So scared. <laughs> um, the yes. cursed mummified egg. <laughs> That's, I'm telling you, horror movie plots abound. <laughs> um, Curdy and uh, Tease had already been kicking around, stirring things up in the culinary world before they entered into molecular— Got together. Yeah, like astronomy. As early as 1969, Curdy gave a speech called The Physicist in the Kitchen, uh, which was a speech that included a presentation of using— uh, the new microwave to make a, quote, reversed baked Alaska. Huh. Yeah. Tease was a big proponent of then newfangled cooking techniques like sous vide in the 1980s. According to him, he got into the field after attempting to make a souffle <gasps> and ignoring the recipes called to add eggs two at a time, seeing no reason for it. So he just added yeah, them he all just, in. Just dumped them all in at once. Yep, and of course it was a total disaster. <laughs> total disaster. And his science brain was like, well, we've got to get to the bottom of this. <laughs> and uh, in the 1980s was the beginning of a lot of progress in terms of understanding the science involved in cooking. And I mean, as we said at the beginning of this, that's been ongoing throughout time. But it, it was kind of a lot of technologies were being developed around around then. and Yeah. Kind of changing our ideas of what food could be. Yes. Yes. And speaking of, back to that aioli equation. Mm. So, uh, Tease came up with this notation technique for describing a recipe, pretty much any given recipe, as a formula. Um, And he called it um, disperse system formalism. Um, And he based it on this existing notation technique for, for describing soft matter. Um, in physics, called a complex uh, dispersion notation or, or complex dispersed systems notation, which was created by this French physicist whose name I might be about to butcher, um, uh, Pierre Gilles de Gênes. His work, uh, de, de Gênes' work with phase transitions and polymers, won him the Nobel Prize in physics in 1991. So, so yeah, Tease was kind of riffing off of this, and um, and his his idea. In, in creating this this notation system for recipes um, is that food is a type of soft matter that we can describe in the same way that we would describe any physical object. You know, food is made of atoms, um, which may be bonded into compounds. Um, and those compounds can be structured in different ways and they can be um, dispersed among or mixed up with other compounds in different ways. Yeah. Okay, so so in, in physics, um, a mixture of different substances is called a colloid. And, and you can describe a colloid by describing what substances are in it and how much of each um, and the size of the particles of those substances um, and, and which of the substances is providing the overall physical structure um, and, and the physical state or, or phase that they're in, you, you know, a solid liquid gas, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, plasma doesn't come into play that often in food. If it does, <laughs> your oven gets much hotter than mine. Ooh. 
I'm intrigued. <laughs> but um, but but yeah. So okay. So take cream for example. Yeah, uh, cream is an emulsion of uh, liquid fats and stuff in liquid water and stuff. Um, and, and you can describe the size of, of those fat and, and water particles and how they're dispersed scientifically. You can also take that resulting liquid and whip air into it, making whipped cream. Um, and you can describe how that gas is dispersed in that liquid in order to create that foam that is whipped cream. And if you wanted to, and this is a little gross because we're talking about dairy product, but like follow along with me here, you could put that liquid cream into into like a spritzer mm-hmm. and spritzer spray tiny droplets of it into the air, creating an aerosol, a a liquid dispersed in a gas. Um, Aerosols often provide scent. Think of like lemon oil or something more pleasant than cream if you want to. (laughs) Um, But this also goes way deeper because food production and cooking are are methods of taking raw ingredients like cream and, and mucking about with their structure to produce really complex stuff like cheese or or yogurt or ice cream or bechamel sauce. And so Tees wound up taking his version of complex dispersed systems notation and applying it to over 450 sauces, (laughs) Um, aioli included, um, just to see what all of those would look like as formulas. And and Tease determined that that for all of their differences in taste, those 450-plus sauces can all be described with one of just 23 formulas. Wow. Um, and furthermore, um, he, he figured out that you can use this system to generate entirely new formulas that you can plug ingredients into, which creates all new recipes, like new foods, just by randomizing a formula process. Um, and, 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 he, and he does this. He actually puts this into practice. When he does, he names the recipes after famous scientists like, uh, like Faraday. Yep. Um, and and, and this, is, this is where everything starts getting a- away from me just a little bit. But, but if I'm reading it correctly, I think uh, that the Faraday, um, this recipe that he created with a random formula— um, is a sort of aspic. It's like it's it's a gel that's made from an oil and a solid combined with, with gelatin dispersed into a liquid and then firmed up into a solid structure, um, which sounds aspic-y to yeah, me. Yeah. yeah. Um, and as an example, um, he he made one with um with with lobster meat and lobster oil um, in a smoked tea soup. Interesting. Up into an aspic. Huh. Of sorts. <laughs> of sorts. Aspic <laughs> of sorts. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. So, so yeah, this this is kind of T's theory on on how all of this works and why it's cool. Yes. Uh, I would agree. That's pretty cool. Um, the Catalonian restaurant El Bulli, which is now closed, often gets credited with bringing modernist cuisine, which is the term... Uh, they like to use describing <laughs> okay. this one, uh, mainstream, and popularizing techniques, ingredients, and presentations that many adapted came to view as the poster children foods and techniques of molecular gastronomy. 
They serve things like foams alongside these brightly colored rectangles that could be any number of textures and hmm. used less traditional ingredients like powdered wheat starch and tools uh, like combs. I think hmm. he said the comb was going to be one of the biggest kitchen tools wow. in the future. All right. Yeah. Um, and the chef there, Ferran Adria, never accepted uh, the molecular gastronomy label and, in fact, actively rejected it as too simplistic for what oh. he was doing. Yes. Oh. Uh huh. <laughs> as do many chefs who get brought up a lot in this conversation, many who have never attended any of Curti and Tease's workshops. Tease himself has been clear that it was never meant to describe cooking itself. Mm-hmm. Um, Adria calls cooking one of the world's oldest languages, that it is a form of self-expression, and that El Bouilly was not a restaurant, but an entire experience. Ah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when I was researching this, uh, snail porridge is also one of the posters. Yeah. It, I swear it came up in every article, every article, every article. Snail porridge. <laughs> Sounds delicious. Um, it does. I don't know what that is, but I want to try it. It's uh, All the reviews I read sounded pretty good to me. The Food Network played a role as well in molecular gastronomy's rise because that channel started entering homes just as molecular gastronomy was entering the zeitgeist. And some speculate that the exposure to new ways of cooking, along with this sort of food is spectacle idea, that it's a performance, helped elevate molecular gastronomy and muddy the definition. Yeah, um, and it is, to be fair, hard to explain such a, like, like deep and kind of nerdy concept in, like, a TV soundbite. Yeah. Um, but it was exciting to see. I, I, was, I was watching a lot of uh, Food Network at the time, um, and it was, it was, I was so into it. Um, and uh, uh, Chef Richard Blaze was one of the people using principles of molecular gastronomy in his cooking on, um, on Top Chef. Yeah, and in fact, when I told someone we were doing this topic, uh, she was like, "Why? Well, why don't you get Richard Blaze? You were on his show. Bring him on yours to talk about this." <laughs> yeah, he, I think he's busy, but <laughs> I, I think yeah, yeah, I think he's got stuff going on. <laughs> yeah, well, so do we. <laughs> um, U.S.-based uh, American Research Chefs Association, or ARCA, coined the term colonology. In 1996, and this referred to the marriage of culinary arts and food science. And they offer college courses across the United States. Um, uh, Tease has been a little bit uh, ornery about mm. the term colonology. Um, <laughs> he he wrote um, a few years back that, uh, oh gosh, I don't have the quote right in front of me, but it was something to the extent of like, first of all, it's trademarked, so you know that it can't really <laughs> mean anything. Wow. Like, oh, shnikes. <laughs> He's a pretty um, blunt fellow, from what I understand. He is. He is. And very, very pithy. <laughs> yes, yes. Pithy and salty, both. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. At any rate. Yes. Uh, Curdy died in 1998, and Tease renamed the conference the International Workshop of Molecular Gastronomy, dropping the physical part of the title. And apparently, I, I read that this was kind of a, a long-running, and I get the feeling, like, fond disagreement between the two of them, um, that, that Curdy, being a physicist, wanted the emphasis uh, the the title physical and molecular gastronomy. He wanted that emphasis on on physical in there to prevent any 
overemphasis on chemistry. Ah. Um, and T's, being a chemist, thought it was perfectly well implied that <laughs> physical was part of it. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, science nerd wordplay. Um, yeah. <laughs> a few years earlier in 1996, Tease gave his PhD dissertation at the University of Paris called Molecular and Physical Gastronomy. In it, he arrived at five goals. Quote, to collect and investigate old wives' tales about cooking, um, to model and scrutinize existing recipes, to introduce new tools, products, and methods to cooking, to invent new dishes using knowledge from the previous three aims, and to use the appeal of food to promote science. Yes. Um, and all of this led to uh, T's creating um, the, the group of molecular gastronomy, a sort of sub-department of the chem lab at, um, at the Collège de France. In 2015, T's made waves again when he espoused his theory that chemical compounds were the key to solving world hunger. Yeah, and he apparently came up uh, with, with the idea for, for Note by Note when he realized that all he needed to do to make cheap whiskey taste more expensive was add a little bit of vanillin, um, which is a, a compound that's part of what makes vanilla taste vanilla-y and also one of the compounds that whiskey picks up when it's aged in oak barrels. Noted. <laughs> mm, I know, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so note by note combines traditional ingredients and methods like oil and sauce, frying and boiling with less traditional ones, like glycerol and citric acid and spherification and dehydration. And these powders last forever and are easier and cheaper to transport than most Mm -hmm. foods. Um, Many of the dishes and sauces he created with this method, yes, he named after scientists. Mm -hmm. I hope he has like a huge roster he's just going through. I know, me too. He was adamant, Tease was adamant that the goal was to create, not recreate, and that this way of approaching cooking offered far more possibilities. It kind of reminded me of the argument with meat alternatives. Yeah. Um, like not trying to recreate uh, a hamburger patty with right. vegetarian methods. It's sort of, this is its own thing. Yeah, making something delicious in its own right um, and nutritious and, yeah. Right. T's plan um, called for farmers to purchase $5,000 extraction kits, on average $5,000, and then pivot to selling these powders. And there are similarities in what he's talking about in other mass-produced factory processed food items, like Coca-Cola, which he views as early iterations. He admits there's a similarity, but not exactly what he's talking about. And reading about some of these, these recipes... Straight up fascinating. They really do sound like science experiments. And for Mm -hmm. me, it's really difficult to fathom how chefs would go from powders and liquids and then use science and these tools to create something that, for instance, reads like soup. So from a 2015 Post magazine article about this, quote, the soup was freeze-dried coconut extract and jellum gum, a bacteria byproduct presented in two contrasting consistencies— in a hot liquid form and as a cold whipped cream that wouldn't melt. He, <laughs> who the chef at the, in this particular dish, had prepared a red garnish by squeezing a gelled soy sauce mixture from a syringe onto an ice cube, and the chicken was really wheat starch, gluten, milk protein, glutamate, and centrifuge carrot fibers pulverized in a coffee <laughs> grinder and then pan-fried. A caramelized sauce flavored with limonene and geranol, geranol, 
aromatic chemicals used more often in cosmetics than in cooking topped off the creation. Huh. Yeah. Huh. I love it. I, I'm like, well, that, that's giving me something to think about. I, I would try that. <laughs> yes. In 2004, um, a group of chemist chefs, which is pretty awesome, combined forces with New York University's Departments of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health to create the Experimental Cuisine Collective in 2007. They provided this definition of experimental cuisine. Experimental cuisine seeks, amongst other things, to contribute to a rigorous scientific understanding of the physical basis for cooking processes, enhance understanding of the social context for cooking and societal ramifications of new food technologies, and accelerate the discovery of scientific and experiment-based approaches to innovative culinary practices, unorthodox flavors, and new dining traditions. This idea has often been called alongside colonology as America's answer to molecular gastronomy, which a lot of people associate more with Europe. Yeah, yeah. In 2004, Thies updated his ideas around molecular gastronomy to include the science of aesthetics and more complex texture consistency experiences. And then Ferran, Adria, Heston Blumenthal, and Thomas Keller, who, yes, are often associated with molecular gastronomy, um, debuted their statement on new cookery in 2006. It read, the fashionable term molecular gastronomy was introduced relatively recently in 1992 to name a particular academic workshop for scientists and chefs on the basic food chemistry of traditional dishes. That workshop did not influence our approach, and the term molecular gastronomy does not describe our cooking or indeed any style of cooking. Uh, Sass is all mine, but I feel like it's warranted. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a little bit of sass and a little bit of just like genuine frustration at at the the misunderstanding of the term. Yes, but but in a sassy way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Madrid held a roundtable event in two thousand nine called "Does Molecular Gastronomy Exist?" Uh, oh. and, and this was sort of all part of, I guess, a backlash uh, against molecular gastronomy. Because that same year, a German journalist published a book with the translated title, I Don't Want to Go Back to the Restaurant, How the Molecular Cuisine Serves as Wallpaper Paste and Fire Extinguisher Powder. (laughs) And that was one example of many. Oh gosh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and I and I really wonder whether um, whether all of this because we bounced around uh, time wise in in this timeline a little bit. Um, I really wonder whether Teases pivot to um, to note by note was a reaction to this reaction. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, whether he was like, well, that's not what I meant anyway, and yeah. furthermore, <laughs> yeah, You're I don't want ones. you to use that term either. Yeah. I could see that. I could see that. Um, <laughs> yeah, and there, there's certainly a lot of uh, confusion. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I went into this episode not being entirely sure what what it was, mm-hmm. and this has all been very illuminating. Yes, and we really. This episode could have been so long. There's so many names we didn't even mention. Um, yeah, like a shot at a. I hope I'm not mispronouncing that at Alinea. He gets um, brought up in this conversation a lot. Um, there's just, and all the techniques are fascinating. Like, spherification. I went on a whole spherification <laughs> rabbit oh, hole. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But. I mean, sous vide could definitely be a oh, whole episode. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. 
Yes. And I suppose if there's anything in here that you want us to really drill down on listeners, let us know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And speaking of. Yes. We do have some listener mail for you. But first, we have one more quick break for word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Discover Puerto Rico. We've talked in a bunch of different episodes about facets of Puerto Rican cuisine, um, like the dish mofongo, made of savory, deep-fried mashed plantains studded with some kind of tasty protein, and the creation of the cool, creamy pina colada. But there is so much more there. Um, I've actually never been. You have a tiny bit of experience, don't you? Yes. Unfortunately, it was a very tiny bit of experience. Mm -hmm. I was there for about a day. I'm kicking myself for that now. I remember having delicious rums, delicious drinks, but I want to go back because, yeah, so many episodes we do on here, when we're talking about food from Puerto Rico, I want that. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) it sounds amazing. We're trying to get a savor team trip together. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Well, I mean, we're we're trying to get a trip to a lot of places, but this this is really top of the list. Even putting together this ad read made me hungry. I was like, oh, oh, I want to try those things. Yeah, as we've talked about before, there are influences there from African and Spanish and native Taino foodways. The culinary scene sounds amazing, and we want to go, and I'm hungry. No passport is required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. You can learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Westholm. I'm a person who doesn't really cook with a lot of meat, to be honest, because when I do, I want it to be special. I'm the same, and I do love sharing that food with people. And I have to say, we received some product, some steak, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I am very eager to share it with my friends. Yeah, uh, West Holm sent us uh, a few of their products, and they included these gorgeous, gigantic tomahawk steaks that I, like, opened the box and immediately sent a picture to my best grilling friend, like, hang out soon. Yes, I did too. (laughs) West Holm offers these beautifully marbled steaks because they have 16 million acres of rangeland across the northeast corner of Australia, from Brisbane to Darwin. They use a nature-led approach with the belief that if they balance the needs of their cattle with the needs of their environment, both can thrive. Their cattle graze on native grasses like Mitchell grass, which is found only in Australia, and roam wild, foraging at will for the first two to three years of their lives. The result is Wagyu beef that reflects the terroir of northern Australia, and a quality that would complement whatever you're into cooking right now. Westholm believes that when nature leads, flavor follows. Learn more at westholme.com slash savor. That's W-E-S-T-H-O-L-M-E dot com slash savor. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Dad deserves something really nice for Father's Day. But let's face it, we usually don't do it. Big gifts are for Mother's Day. Picking something up on the way is for Father's Day. Well, let's make Father's Day something this year with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. It whips up over 60 premium cocktails on demand, each ready at the push of a button. And right now, you get $50 off the Bartesian Cocktail Maker when you buy one pack of Dad's favorite cocktail capsules. Dad will publicly love that you saved 50 on the countertop machine that crafts premium cocktails on demand. And he'll secretly love that you splurged on him for Father's Day with the gift of a Bartesian. Because the only thing that lets Dad know he's the 
world's number one dad better than a world's number one dad coffee mug is an artisan cocktail in his hand. Make dad's Father's Day and Father's Day cocktails with all natural juices and bitters without making any mess at all. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash father to get $50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Artesian. Premium cocktails on demand. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. And we're back with like a centrifuge. (laughs) Maybe, probably not at all. (laughs) Tried my best. (laughs) Hannah wrote. I just listened to the recent classic episode on marshmallows. In the intro, you mentioned how in quarantine you can't toast marshmallows, but you can microwave them to make s'mores. That is, of course, much preferred over going tragically s'moresless <laughs> through this, our time of most desperate need of confectionery joy. However, my partner and I have found an even better way to enjoy summer s'mores while stuck inside. We set our oven to broil and placed a few evenly spaced marshmallows on a cookie sheet under the broiler. Less than a minute later, we had perfect, gooey on the inside and browned on the outside marshmallows. A word of warning, though. If you decide to do this, you have to keep an eye on the marshmallows the (laughs) entire time they're in the oven. The difference between sweet, nostalgic goodness and, well, time to call the fire department is about 90 seconds. (laughs) This is why when my partner and I did it, we literally sat on the floor in front of the oven with the oven light on, staring at the marshmallows the whole time they baked. (laughs) Additionally, you are unable to find chocolate and or graham crackers. You can always use a substitute. Here in Canada, it's pretty common to use celebration cookies, a chewy cookie covered in chocolate with a gooey filling of raspberry or caramel. Mm. Ooh. Or digestive cookies, which is the grossest sounding game, <laughs> but is actually a really yummy cookie, in lieu of graham crackers. Whatever way you make your indoor quarantine s'mores, they always taste better when eaten in a pillow fort tent with a roaring fire on the TV. See attached pictures. <laughs> this is the year for refusing to let extenuating shortages are this silly idea we call being a mature adult and not building a pillow fort to hide from your problems get in the way of our fun. <laughs> Agreed. Hard agree. Oh, absolutely. Always agree, even outside of quarantine. It's been a long time since I made a pillow fort. I I, I think about pillow forts all the time, <laughs> and I so rarely bake them. Oh. Um, Every time it so. rains, I'm like, it's time to build a pillow fort, right? Yeah. Like, I think so. I think it might be. Also, yeah. I used to go to this event in Atlanta— um, where it was a fundraising event and it was just a s'more bar and it had, it was the best. It had like 50 <laughs> types of marshmallows, uh, all candy and bacon and all those toppings, just a whole smorgasbord of s'more stuff, <laughs> s'more board. Uh, <laughs> um, it was awesome. I loved it. And then there was fires outside and music and you just sit around and eat your way too big s'mores that you piled way too many uh, toppings on huh. Oh, that's delightful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can back Hannah up on the watching marshmallows if you put them under the broiler thing. I, I used to make this, um, this like, uh, chocolate icebox pie with a graham cracker crust and a uh, marshmallow topping mm-hmm. that that I would uh, uh, put under the broiler um, in order to yeah make it make it nice and 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 browned and and crispy on top and get that gooey and crispy contrast. And oh yeah. 
Yeah, that's... <laughs> you want to watch that. You want to keep an eye on that one. <laughs> noted. Uh, noted. Yeah. I... Uh, oh, my gosh. I The other day, my... One of my friends, we did the whole, like, two weeks quarantine. She came to stay with me. Oh, and uh-huh. I was very foolishly toasting bread in the oven without, like, a pan. I just put it on. And it mm-hmm. fell through the slats and caught on fire. Oh, no. And I just, like, closed the oven slowly. And I turned to her and I said, so it's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> it all worked out. But I'm just, the reaction oh. was qu- quite funny to me. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, really? And I opened it up and I pointed it in. <laughs> They're like, yep, there's the fire. It's on fire. <laughs> uh, what should we do? <laughs> we handled it. She mostly handled it. So good thing she was there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad it all worked out. It did. Um, I, I will say that that after one, one less than great time that I had, uh, I, I wound up, I, I have a small kitchen torch and I just, yeah. I just toast all marshmallow products in the kitchen with my kitchen oh, that's, torch. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Fancy. Yeah. Very. Oh yeah, yeah. I feel <laughs> like a crazy badass every single time. I do. <laughs> nice. <laughs> like yes, look at the power I wield over these marshmallows. <laughs> burn marshmallows, burn. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. Um. Uh. Katie Lynn wrote, "I wanted to send a suggestion for all your gelatin." Panna cotta. It's so good and really simple. I was first served it in Japan, and it's probably my favorite dessert. It's also really impressive-seeming if you serve it for friends. And speaking of Japan, when my husband and I went, we did try fugu. And it was meh. I remember the bits we grilled being rubbery, and the sashimi was, like, fine— the experience of eating something so dangerous was more memorable than the actual taste. Maybe it was out of season or we went to too touristy of a restaurant. For me, the most memorable or exciting food we had in Japan, far more dangerous than fugu, was horse sashimi. We'd read about izakayas, uh, Japanese bars that serve lots of small plates, and wanted to try an authentic one. The place we found was in a tiny alley near a hotel in Osaka, and uh, definitely not meant for tourists. My husband, bless his heart, likes to order the strangest-looking thing on any menu he sees, and nothing could beat raw horse. After verifying that we understood that we were getting horse, raw horse, the cook went behind the bar we were sitting at to prepare it. He set our uh, paper order down and, with his bare hands, grabbed a block of frozen horse meat from the cooler, cut some thin slices, and started massaging them to warm them up. During this process, another patron walked up and handed him money to pay for his bill, which the cook took and gave him change, and then went back to prepping our food with the same hands. Of course, this was two years ago, so it was not at all good food safety, but still funny. (laughs) After serving the horse to us, uh, the cook— his helper, and their little grandma of a manager all stood by eagerly waiting to see our reactions. I think we disappointed them because it wasn't bad. It tasted kind of like horse smells, that that musky sweat smell, but mixed with a very rare steak. It's what I imagine whenever someone says something tastes gamey. And now, the demon cheese. (laughs) Somehow, we formed the tradition of having a giant charcuterie board for special occasions, Christmas, anniversary, Wednesday. Anyway, this past Thanksgiving, both my parents and my husband's came to visit us in our new home. Mine are in Nebraska, his in Utah, and we just moved to Maryland. 
So naturally, I made a cheese plate. I bought all sorts of fun stuff, and since pretty much everyone present likes spicy things, I decided to get the Kindred Creamery Ghost Pepper Colby Jack Cheese. You could barely even see the pepper pieces, so it'll be fine, right? Well, I noticed when prepping it that my fingers were burning just a little, but that happens when you cut jalapenos and habaneros normally, so still fine. It was not fine. It was impossible. We tried crackers with it, milk, cake, nothing helped. You'd eat a bite of a tiny piece, and 10 minutes later, your mouth is still burning. Now, no shade to Kindred. Uh, We figured it out eventually. Uh, One tiny chopped up piece per sandwich. But it will always be known to us as demon cheese. Side note, their foraged mushroom and spring onion cheese is amazing. (laughs) Well, first of all, why isn't demon cheese a horror movie? That's just, that's wrong. Uh, This is the movie we need to make, Annie. Oh, I am in demon cheese, like slow zoom in shots on this cheese. Uh, Right? And like it has like the blue eye veins that make it look like it has a face. Uh Oh, yeah. 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 Well, we got to get on that. Um, Also, I have had horse sashimi as well. And uh, yeah, I thought it was pretty good. And I found, one of the things I found interesting when I was in Japan that I've never seen um, anywhere else is uh, raw eggs. Kind of as like an appetizer. Just here's an egg and kind of drink it. Um, Yeah. And raw chicken. Raw chicken. Oh, wow. Huh. All right. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, thanks to both of them for writing in. If you would Mm -hmm. like to write to us, you can. Our email is (laughs) hello at saberpod.com. We're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at saverpod. And we do hope to hear from you. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit tomboyx.com to shop. Your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those, too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings.
Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash covers your skin in layers of rich moisturizers and vitamin B3 complex, transforming your skin from dry and dull to moisturized, soft and smooth in just 14 days. Feel the best in your skin and glow with confidence, all pride. For the third year, Olay Body is a proud sponsor of iHeartRadio and PNG's Can't Cancel Pride and supporter of the LGBTQ plus community. So this pride glow with confidence, not just all month, but all year long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer.